My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Right now, around the world, people are going hungry. This is a global food crisis, and it looks different across the globe, but it ultimately comes down to the same thing. The climate crisis and armed conflicts have left millions starving. Supply chain problems, the ongoing pandemic, and political wrangling have made importing food more costly and problematic. And here at home, in what most would consider a country of abundance, food insecurity impacts millions of Canadians. Almost 6 million of them in 2021, according to Statistics Canada. Now recently, you may have seen the blame for this laid on inflation or on greedy grocery chains. You may have been encouraged to help solve the problem by donating to local food banks or by adding a few bucks to your grocery purchase to help someone in need. Maybe you even gave up those points you earned buying groceries to help someone buy theirs. But the cause of this problem isn't what you think it is. And neither is the solution. This is a lot more complex than it seems, but also, once you see the scope of what's happening, it's pretty damn simple. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Valerie Tarasuk is a professor in nutritional sciences at Temerity Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She also leads Proof, a research program on food insecurity. Hello, Valerie. Hello. Before we get to the current food crisis, I just want to delve in a little bit into to what you do and how you monitor uh, food insecurity. So when did we start sort of using that term and tracking it? We started using the term in the early 2000s, I guess, and in Canada at least. And Statistics Canada started tracking the problem systematically in 2005. And since then, every year on national population surveys, there have been questions running to um, assess the the prevalence and the severity of household food insecurity in Canada. What's the definition that we use for that term? You know, what's the criteria you and the team use? Well, I mean, it's it's not just us, right? The 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 problem is measured using an eighteen item module that was originally developed in the United States by the United States Department of Agriculture to monitor food insecurity in that country. And now, I mean, that eighteen item module is used all around the world now. It's a, considered the gold standard. Okay. And the questions on it range in severity from: Do you ever worry about running out of food because of a lack of money? And always over the last twelve months, through to not being able to feed yourself or your children balanced meals because of a lack of money for food, and then a whole string of questions that are asking about quantitative deprivation. So going hungry without eating, skipping meals, or cutting the size of meals because you lack food and money for food, and at its most extreme, going whole days without eating. 
And all of them have this clause attached to establish that the experience is rooted in a lack of money for food, because that's the way most of us acquire food. The questions differentiate between the experiences of adults and children because of a huge body of research that shows when families are struggling to make ends meet, often adults will deprive themselves of food as a way to free up scarce resources for their children. So that's kind of the, that's the framework for the measurement. Based on that measurement, what we're tracking is inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. I mean, there's many definitions of food security and food insecurity, but the thing that is being monitored in Canada and many other countries is this idea of people not not having enough food, not being able to acquire the food they need because of financial constraints. It's one thing to say, you know, Canadians are struggling more and more with food insecurity, but we've talked about this before on the show. There is a global food crisis happening right now. And is it important to know, you know, how those things compare relative to one another? Like, I know we're still really well off, right? Yes. I'm not sure that it's important to compare, to be quite honest. I th- absolutely. There are parts of the world that are, you know, experiencing extreme levels of food insecurity. And, you know, that that's important, no question. But the genesis of those problems and the solutions to those problems are probably a little bit different than they are here in Canada or in other high-income countries. So I think for us, we have, a, we have a domestic problem, and I think the relevant comparators for us are other high-income countries like the U.S. or Europe or whatever. But then there's this bigger story of circumstances in other parts of the country where there are extreme levels of food deprivation and you know serious levels of malnutrition. And absolutely, that's not, thankfully, that's not what we're talking about in affluent countries like Canada. But I'm not sure that we should take any comfort from the fact that we have a problem, even though it's less than, you know, the problem that we might find in sub- the sub-Saharan Africa or something, you know? So I, I think we have to keep this in perspective. No, that definitely makes sense. And and I guess I wasn't intending to use the, you know, we're better off kind of language. But it was interesting what you mentioned there. So I just want to ask you quickly before we move on, how are the problems different? You know, what is the difference between what's causing food insecurity in places uh, where malnutrition is severe, uh, like in Africa, and causing food insecurity in Canada? Well, in some parts of the world, and I mean, my expertise is absolutely in Canada, not globally. But if we look at circumstances globally, there perhaps is a greater influence uh, of climate change and food supply or food systems issues, as well as problems of distribution. So when I say distribution, what I mean is that you know, we can find countries like India, Bangladesh, where we can find very, very poor people with very extreme levels of food insecurity. But in those same countries, we've got people who are wealthy and are not at risk. If anything, they're at risk of, of you know, diseases of affluence. So that element of the problem is a distributional one, whereby, you know, the resources, the existing food resources or, you know, material resources are not shared equitably. In higher income countries, the problem of food insecurity tends to fall into that domain. It's, you know, we we garner our food through typically through the markets and food retail outlets. And there's ample food in those stores, but some people in our country are less able to walk in there and shop than others. And so 
For us, the relevant drivers are the things that determine the amount of money in the purse relative to the expenses that an individual or family are facing. Whereas in other parts of the world where, for example, there's been extreme weather events, you know, extraordinary political instability and other sorts of issues affecting the production of food and the food supply chain, in addition to, you know, the distribution of wealth in the country. So in Canada, I don't think we have the food supply issues impacting household food insecurity, at least, in the same way that happens in some lower or middle-income countries. That's a great distinction to make, and I appreciate it. In Canada, as we focus on uh, what's driving food insecurity here, first, how quickly is it accelerating? I think uh, a lot of Canadians anecdotally have heard stories of food bank usage skyrocketing. Obviously, there's a ton of coverage about the actual price of groceries these days. You mentioned at the beginning of this chat uh, that it's tracked every single year in Canada. So from, you know, a couple of years ago to last summer to now, how many more Canadians are affected? How quickly is it rising? I think you'd be surprised. It actually, we don't have data for 2022 yet. So we'll see the effect of food price inflation, for example, when the 2022 data come in. But if I think about all the data that we've got prior to 2022, you'd be surprised how stable this problem is. We've got a problem that I think is festering. And yes, we can see rises in food prices. And, you know, through the pandemic, we had um, dramatic shifts in terms of employment and, and then the introduction of um, CERB and CRB. You know, we, we've, we've had a lot of turbulence over the last few years, but there's a swath of Canadian households that are food insecure. And I think what's happening to them now is they're probably becoming, some of them at least, more severely food insecure as prices rise and they're less able to manage. But, you know, everybody is going to the grocery store and noticing higher prices, and we're talking about it. But very few of us are going to walk away saying, gee, I'm not going to be able to actually feed myself and my kids today because of these prices, right? I mean, that's a big thing to get to that place. When a household is saying yes to those 18 questions, they've got a very, very significant problem of financial hardship in that household. And those numbers, I don't think, are flying, you know, moving around nearly as rapidly as things like food prices are. In a perfect world, what's the easiest way to solve that problem? Well, the easiest way to solve it is to deal with the income issues. I mean, at the end of the day, how much money somebody has for food is about how much money they've got in their purse. And... That's why we've got this festering problem, because we really haven't reconciled that problem, right? We've got a whole lot of people, both people in the workforce and people relying on social assistance, so welfare disability payments, who are unable to make ends meet routinely because the um, cash flow is simply not sufficient or not reliably sufficient to cover basic costs of things like food and rent. So, it's not just the simplest. I would say it's probably the only solution to this in the bigger scheme of things is going to be addressing the the causes, the drivers, which is um, inadequate and insecure incomes. I should back up a moment. One thing to flag for you, and maybe it's obvious, but maybe not. When somebody is identified or a household, a family is identified as being food insecure because they report experiences of, um, you know, inadequate access to food because of financial constraints. We, we find them by asking those questions about food intake, food access. But when we scratch the surface, we find that they're actually struggling across the spectrum. The same 
Families that are food insecure are very likely to be worried about being able to pay their rent. They may be in arrears, or if they had a mortgage, they may be defaulting. They're very likely to not be paying utility bills or um, credit card bills. They're undoubtedly, those ones are in default, but telecommunications bills, if they've got prescription medications, as most of them will have because of the very, very tight intersection of food insecurity with chronic um, diseases, if they've got prescription medications, they're likely not filling them as prescribed if there's any cost associated with those prescriptions at all. So we identify somebody as food insecure through the lens, of, you know, through asking all these um, questions about their access to food. But what we're really doing is identifying individuals and families with pervasive material deprivation that is rooted in an inability to meet basic needs with their existing sources of revenue. So once you see it through that lens, then it becomes obvious that we've got to tackle the revenue issue because the equation is not going to ever balance if incomes are not sufficient to meet costs. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Universal basic income is something that's been talked about a lot. It doesn't seem incredibly politically feasible right now. So why can't we just give these people who need it food? And, you know, I was going to ask you about food waste, which we always hear uh, from food banks and other places. And, you know, now that feels woefully inadequate, right? Yeah, why can't we just give people food? Well, you know, we have been doing that, right? We've got more than 40 years of history of food banking in Canada. And even to this day, food charity continues to be our dominant response. You know, through the pandemic, we've seen both the federal government and the provincial governments allocating unprecedented levels of money to food charities, just food banks, but also, you know, breakfast clubs and a second harvest, community food centers, as if that was a way to stop people from going hungry. Uh, there's a couple of things that your listeners need to know. First, that doesn't happen, right? When someone goes to a charity or their kid goes to a breakfast program, they get, you know, some free food, but they go back home and they're in the same place they left that morning. Nothing in that home has changed, right? The welfare income, if that's what the household is dependent on, is still, you know, likely to be insufficient to cover basic needs. If um, the family are in the workforce, and we know over half of food insecure households are reliant on employment incomes, still they're ending up not having enough money coming in to cover basic costs. So receiving a bit of free food once in a while from food charities, or even on a daily basis, if that was possible, it doesn't change any of the things that are causing people to be unable to meet their needs themselves. And, you know, it doesn't pay for their prescription medications or their rent or their utilities or their shoes or anything else. So, you know, it's never going to be a fix because it's not tackling the the real problem of inadequate income and the amount of food that's being given is simply, you know, it's, it's simply insufficient given the given the pervasive deprivation that that household's experiencing. The other thing that might surprise you, while we keep seeing these reports of rising food bank numbers and, you know, record highs and all that kind of stuff, 
When people like Proof compare the food bank statistics to the Statistics Canada data on food insecurity, what we typically find is that it's only a small fraction of people who are food insecure who ever use food banks or other food charities. The discrepancy is huge, actually. Our most recent data would suggest that for every person that uses a food bank, we have four or five other people in the community that are also food insecure, but not not using food charity. Do we know why that is? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, well, there are a few reasons. I mean, I think that people in these circumstances, many of them don't see the receipt of a small amount of charitable food as as a solution to their problems. And that would be true from our research. We would say they're right. It's not going to solve their problems. So they may may appraise the prospects out there and decide... Rather than putting energy into tracking down some food charity outlet and, you know, lining up and showing you their ID and going through the the process of that intake interview. I mean, there's a string of things. You don't just typically walk in and receive food. But rather than going through that process, which is which is stigmatizing, right? And, you know, no matter how hard food charity operators work to make their programs welcoming and non-stigmatizing, the truth is, in an affluent society like ours, the receipt of charity from a stranger, food charity, you know, a handout, a food handout, that's a deeply humiliating thing. And so, you know, when we look at who does use food banks, it tends to be people who are desperate. They're more more likely to be severely food insecure. It's a strategy of last resort. And I think that's because of the stigma associated with it. And it's the stigma that no matter how nice the people are who are operating those programs, we're never going to be able to get rid of that stigma because of, you know, just the, the optics of receiving charity in an affluent society. So that's one piece, the stigma and the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, somebody who is struggling, they may think I'm better off trying to talk to my landlord and get them to forgive this last month rent or to give me a bit more time to pay it. I'm better off, you know, trying to pick up more hours at work or selling something, trying to do something else to manage the financial crisis I've got than than to go and get the small amount of food, which actually isn't going to solve this bigger problem I've got, which is I can't make ends meet. So there's that piece. The other thing, though, that is interesting, I, I said earlier that over half of households that are food insecure are relying on employment incomes. So those people are working. We also know that Uh, families with children are more likely to be food insecure than families without children, people under the age of 18. And so we've got two things. We've got people who are working and people who have childcare responsibilities. And so those are busy people, right? And often in food insecure situations, we'll find people working, you know, part-time, short-term hours, maybe a couple of jobs, juggling, scrambling to get more, more hours. They've got a lot going on just in the course of their daily lives. So they may not have time to seek out a charitable food operation that is open at the time that they're free and where they can get childcare to be able to go there. And, you know, it's complicated. It's not like they're just sitting around. Imagine a family that is low wage, maybe a couple of parents working short-term part-time jobs with childcare responsibilities. Those are very, very busy people. It takes, you know, it takes a lot of work to be poor. And so they, it, it may not simply be viable for them even to go to one of these places. And like I say, at the end of the day, even if they go from a research perspective, we're not going to be able to see any difference because whatever they've received is just literally going to be a drop in the bucket in terms of what they need. So let's talk about what we can do then that might address uh, the whole of this problem. And this is something I like to ask when we talk about these kind of intractable issues. 
This is a problem across the country. Uh, To your point, it's a problem in many places in the world. Is there somewhere in Canada or elsewhere that you can think of that gets this right, that is doing something, even if it's a small program in one community, that we can look to and say, how can we, you know, extrapolate that into something that Canadians can use across the country? I I can think of two examples that immediately come to mind listening to your question. One of them is Quebec. and especially over the last few years, when we look at national data on food insecurity, Quebec is pulling away from the pack. When Proust first started doing this work, Quebec looked very much like Ontario. In the last report that we issued looking at data from 2021, there was a three or four percentage point gap between Quebec and Ontario. So Quebec had a substantially lower prevalence of food insecurity. When we compared Quebec to the rest of the provinces, just to give you an illustration of how big the gap was, In 2021, the prevalence of household food insecurity in Quebec was 13.1%. In Alberta, it was 20 point something percent. So more than a seven percentage point difference. Like that's gigantic, right? So the situation in Quebec is not perfect. But the fact that that province is continually now exhibiting a substantially lower prevalence of food insecurity than everybody else in the country To me, it indicates that they're doing something right. Do we know what they're doing? Well, it's not one thing. I mean, you know, I think probably we need a few PhD theses on this topic, but I've mentioned welfare and social assistance a few times in this conversation. You know, Quebec has more generous benefits than a lot of other parts of the country, but also Quebec's um, social assistance benefits are indexed to inflation. So through these last few months, as prices of basic essentials have risen dramatically in Quebec, those people would be receiving, you know, a small increase in their income to recognize the increase in cost of living. That doesn't happen in most parts of this country. It doesn't happen in Ontario. It doesn't happen in most provinces, but it's happened in Quebec for years. So, you know, not to say that people on welfare in Quebec are well off, but at least they haven't been made systematically poorer over these last few months as their income has stagnated and prices have risen, which is what's happened in many other parts of the country. So that's just a starting point. I mean, I'm sure, you know, many people, when they hear me talk about Quebec, their heads are immediately going to childcare, that Quebec has got very different childcare policies. And so they've got more participation in the labor force of women. They've also got better uh, maternity leave policies. Like there's just, there are so many ways in which they are different, but what all of those ways have in common is that they seem to be looking after people on the bottom end of the income spectrum better, right? They, t- they take care of their population better. And so we see a, a substantially lower prevalence of food insecurity in Quebec than elsewhere in the country and a very, very low prevalence of severe food insecurity. So people going hungry without eating, that is very, very rare in Quebec, but quite common in many other parts of the country. So Quebec's one example. The other example is what we're doing for seniors. And this is an example that goes across the country. But one of the things that has been observed since the very, very beginnings of food insecurity measurement in Canada, we've seen that when we find a household whose main source of income is pensions, old age pensions, they have a very low risk of food insecurity. That People who are over the age of 65 have the lowest likelihood of food insecurity of anybody in the country. And like I say, that's been true for as long as anybody's been measuring this stuff. And what we think that is about 
is the fact that when you turn 65, no matter how you spent the last 65 years, when you turn 65, you'll be entitled to old age security. So a federally administered pension that is indexed to inflation. And if you're low income, you'll also be able to receive the guaranteed income supplement. So those two sources of revenue together will deliver to you an income that is more than double the income of somebody on welfare right now. And it will be indexed to inflation, which, as I said before, it's not true for most um, welfare programs in the country. On top of that, you'll receive full pharma care. When you uh, do something like take public transit, you'll notice you get a substantial discount on your fare and no one's talking about increasing it now. There are many ways in which society kind of works together to um, maintain relatively low cost of living for seniors, but it starts with a public pension program that is that is solid. It's not perfect. I mean, the prevalence of food insecurity among seniors isn't zero, but it's substantially lower than the prevalence among people in the workforce or people uh, people on social assistance, people on employment insurance or CERB. And I think that's about the fact that, you know, the income is more adequate. So it takes us, for those of us working in the field, it the findings around the very positive impact of our public pension system for seniors have taken us into thinking about basic income because that's the closest idea we've got, right? When we when you hit 65, what we've got is an income floor below which we do not let people fall. And that income floor is, is you know, relatively adequate, not perfect, depending on where you are and what else you have to cope with, but still substantially better than anything we're doing for people under 65. So that's another example of where we've gotten it right. And not that not to say that when our federal government implemented these pension programs way back when, that they were thinking what we really need to do is tackle food insecurity. They weren't. But still, the net effect of trying to reduce poverty amongst seniors and do it in a way that was secure and stable and, you know, and reasonably respectful, it took us to this place of now strikingly lower rates of food insecurity amongst um, elderly people in Canada. So last question then, uh, you know, if we do have some models of things that can work um, and it is tied to income and and this is a problem that so many Canadians are struggling with, where is the general political will to help these people who are hungry and, and who are impoverished? And I, I know this is a huge question, but is it like we never really want to look at ourselves and see ourselves as being food insecure one day so we don't feel that urgent need to to push for it politically? Possibly. But I also think that there's probably a bit of mythology around the effectiveness of our food charity system. The fact that the public face of this problem remains food banks, and we see political leaders of all stripes and at all levels of government really um, reinforcing the importance of, you know, donating to food banks, volunteering at food banks, like, you know, through the Christmas season or through, you know, through holiday periods. It's routine for us to see our prime minister and premiers showing up at um, food charity organizations, right, and rolling up their sleeves and sorting cans. And, you know, the Internet's filled with that kind of um, that kind of imagery. And so I, I think there's a, there's an illusion in Canada that we somehow are managing this the situation that no one's going hungry because we've got all this, these these goodwill efforts going on. 
The data simply don't support the idea that no one's going hungry. That That is not true. People are going hungry. And, you know, this food charity ad hoc community-based food charity system that we've entrenched is not good enough to stop people from going hungry. And I mean, when I say that, I mean, it may sound harsh, but I'm not saying anything that food bank operators haven't been saying for years, right? The, you know, leaders of many, you know, huge food charity operations in this country are probably the first to say, you know, somebody really needs to deal with the policy problem here. Like, we can't fix this problem. So I'm not saying anything that's contrary in that regard, but I do feel like there's a way in which our political leaders have been gliding along without really um, any accountability for the fact that this problem continues to fester and probably right now is getting worse. You know, meanwhile, they're telling us all to donate and periodically they're throwing small amounts of money at the at the system as well. I think that's a, a part of the problem in Canada that we're going to have to reckon with. Valerie, thank you so much for this incredibly in-depth conversation. And I'm I'm unhappy to learn that I can't blame this whole thing on Galen Weston. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure you can't. I'm not sure you can't. <laughs> I think I would, I, not that anyone's, um, you know, invited me to do this yet, but I would like to do a study of the workers in Galen Weston's operations. Because as I said earlier, a substantial chunk of food insecurity in this country is sitting in the workforce. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we can find some of that in Galen's workforce, because that's exactly the kind of jobs, right? Low wage jobs without benefits, probably not not full time. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take him off the hook yet. <laughs> if you do that study, you can come back on the podcast. <laughs> oh, I will ask to come back on the podcast because the contrast between whatever goes on in terms of the empo- employment policies at Loblaw and its affiliates, that contrast between that and the charitable profile of, you know, their their Yeah, kick in an extra couple bucks and and add a add a soup can to your order. Well, and or give your optimum points over Christmas, right? They were asking people to give their um, points to food banks. So oh, yeah. you know, there it appears that Mr. Weston and his colleagues are aware of this problem. Um, but it would be really, we would be in a wonderful place if they were to start to think about how they relate to that problem in terms of employment. Thank you again for this. This is great. Well, thank you for your questions. They were absolutely excellent. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Valerie Tarasuk, Professor of Nutritional Sciences at Temerity, Faculty of Medicine, and the leader of Proof. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. We got some letters from a couple of you guys based on yesterday's episode, in which some of you noted I injected my opinion. A couple of you took issue with that. Most of you didn't. But I don't pretend not to have opinions on this show. Sometimes I don't state them because honestly, you guys don't pay me for that. You're not here for that. You're here for me to ask questions. But if it comes up and it's on a subject that impacts me and impacts you and impacts everybody who listens to the show, I think it would be disingenuous to pretend that I didn't feel some way about something. So if I do that, just know that that's just the way I feel. You don't have to feel that way. It doesn't influence the questions I ask, and I'm happy to discuss it anytime it comes up. The only reason I don't is because my job is to ask things, not answer them. You can send us emails, and I know you guys know the address after yesterday. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call and leave a phone message. And given how passionate people get about healthcare, I'm surprised nobody did that. But if you want to, the phone lines are always open. 416-935-5935. 
I never worked in radio, but I always wanted to say the phone lines are open. So call us and leave a message. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a smart speaker, ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.